dedication, discipline, passion, sacrifice, rise and rise again. Welcome to Any Given Chance. Massive shout out to our sponsor, Squad Athletica. Guys, this training gears, you've got the training singlets, the shirts, they've got absolutely everything. They've got the 12-inch shorts, the 16, everything that you need for the running. It doesn't stop there. They've got yoga mats, they've got drink bottles, they've got you covered at all bases. I'm telling you, this training gear is rivaling Nike, it's rivaling Under Armour, it's at the forefront. And the best thing about it is it's right here on the Gold Coast. So it's a supportable local business. You can jump over to their Instagram, it's at SQD Athletica. Or you can jump online and check out their shop, Squad Athletica. Go through, select your little things, what you want to buy, new hoodies for winter, whatever training gear you need, and then type in your AGC code at the end, which will give you a little discount. That's AGC in the little coupon code. Can't thank you enough and make sure you get out there and get in your squad gear. Big shout out to one of our sponsors, Black Rose Barbers. That's right. Go see Liam and the boys over at Black Rose Barbers. They're located on Lakeview Boulevard over at Mermaid Waters, right in between the Good Life and the 7-Eleven. Walk out of there feeling a million bucks. The boys can cut hair and he even does the cutthroat razor if you want to feel really fresh and fit on a Friday. You can book online at blackrose.com or you can get on the phone and give them a call, but go support your local business. And the best thing about Black Rose Barber, you can sit in that chair and talk maximum amount of crap. You know why? Because the boys have got the answers. They'll solve the world's problems with you. I'm telling you now, they're a bunch of legends. Go support them. Tell them Matty from AGC sent you. Boom. All right, here we go. Welcome, everybody. Any Given Chance podcast, stories about passion, sacrifice, the hard work that goes on behind the scenes. I've got two special guests, father and son duo from down at the Hunter Valley. Welcome in, Andrew and Dylan Gibbons. Boys, thank you for coming on. How good? Yeah, no worries, mate. Happy to be on. The epitome of this podcast is winners, mate. I love winning and I love the hard work that goes into winning as well. What I've noticed against your career first, Andrew, is trustworthy. Every time I'm watching you ride, everyone always has trust in your ability or trust that you're going to go out there and put in you know, 100% effort on your ride. You see a lot of people getting around trying to pretty things up and all that, but your career has absolutely stand, and I mean, you're not done yet by any means, but it, it's standard the test of time and someone you can trust within sport. And that's very hard to get, I believe. But if we can just jump back and Dill, I'll get to you in a second. Mate, how did you end up getting into racing? Because I heard you were a bit of a sports fiend growing up. Boxing, soccer, doing everything, anything to do with sport had your name written on it. Yeah, well, that's all I ever wanted to do was uh, be a soccer player. As a kid, I was absolutely obsessed with it. Played rep teams and done all right for myself, but probably got to around the age of sort of 13 and all the other kids in the team kept growing taller and bigger and stronger and I stayed where I was and although I still had the ability, I started getting looked down at a few teams of my size which um, disheartened me a bit and so I got off track with that sort of thing and got off track with school leaving and, and didn't even get interested in that so I had no idea what I wanted to do because I said I was, had a one-track morning about doing soccer. I did tinker a bit with boxing. I had one of my best mates growing up. His father was a professional boxer before he was born and he trained amateurs and I, he got me involved in that. And that was something I, I quite enjoyed. I, I had 20, 21 fights and we lost three or four and won a couple of state titles, won an Australian title my last fight. And I actually got asked to get into a training camp for the 2000 Olympics, but that was around the same time I was getting to the stage where I didn't want to go back to school and 
Obviously, with parents said, well, if you're not going to go in a silly, you need to do something. And I just had that little bit of interest in racing just through watching it and dad take us to the races. So I said, oh, we'll give it a go and doesn't work. I can always go back to school. So that sort of cancelled the boxing dream because I didn't have time to do both. And dad helped me get set up with a phone to teach himself to ride and, and got me a job with Noel Ackrell Smith at Newcastle when he was there. And um, yeah, from there, the rest is history. I just kept on doing it and was successful enough to keep at it and didn't have to go back to school. Did you come from a racing family? Like, is your old boys and that, like, what's the backdrop there? Or was it just like something that they sort of, you nudged towards, like just being around the industry? Yeah, dad had a little bit of involvement. Dad's from Glasgow, Scotland. His whole family moved out here when he was, I think he was sort of, what are you, 15, 16? And he didn't like it with his family. So he went back on his own and got himself a job riding work in the stables back in Scotland. That's where his interest started. And then obviously when he's two out here, met my brother and um, Adam, myself and my brother and sister. He still had that interest in racing. He worked a little bit with so many people around our way back in them days. He used to train from their home around the mainland way and there should be a few training tracks around here and he'd tinker with them a little bit and help them out. Still ran a little bit of work then when I was a kid and he just took us to the races a few times just because he's a little bit of interest in, and that's sort of where I got the bug. Where was the first horse? How did you get on a horse? How did that happen? Yeah, well, a friend of dad's who owned a couple of horses and He'd spell them in his house. He had dad out there helping him out, looking after the spellers and pre-trained them a little bit. And basically dad just got a pony and off a friend and we kept it there. It was only five minutes from our house and I used to just go up every afternoon and basically jumped on it, self-taught myself riding around his property. There was a place in Oakfarkle, there was a equestrian place in Oakfarkle that I went to for a couple of riding lessons, but it wasn't many. But yeah, basically self-taught myself. And then when I got the job with Noam Lake and Smith, Thought I was ready to go, but he put me in a couple to trot around the ball ring and that wasn't <laughs> well, you know, 30 laps on one of them. He actually sent me to his breaker because well, it was a nice transition that his breaker would break him in, pre-train him, and then he'd bring him to the track for a week or two before he actually gave him to Noel to take over. So well, I could ride him on the property before they were highly strung in horses yeah. and got a racetrack. And then the ones I was riding on his property, I'd go to the track and ride. And that was a good progression for me. And after doing that for probably two or three months, then I was ready to go to the yeah. track. So how old were you then? Hey, actually first, before I jump into that, what was the pony's name? Couldn't tell you. Couldn't tell you? Couldn't oh. tell you. Nah. He's throwing you a lifeline. He's giving you a career and you just, you've shut yeah. him off to the side. <laughs> yeah. oh, I think a couple of carrots. How long ago? I was showing my age. Right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. How old were you then when you, oh, when you first started? Fifteen, just turning sixteen, was I got my first job at Stables. And Dill, I'll bring you in here. How old were you when you started actually getting on the back of them and riding them around track? Obviously, being around your dad, you would have been around that course your whole life. You know what I mean? Is that sort of your upbringing? Yeah, I was at the races flat out any chance I could get. But as much as I had a one track mind, was always going to be a jockey. It took me forever to get on a horse. I probably wasn't. Until I was 15, 16, same as dad, that I actually got on a horse and got things going to be a jockey. So don't know why it took me so long, but I probably was... my fault I wouldn't let him. Yeah, smart <laughs> moves. Yeah. I always say that about Sonny, about picking up a rugby league ball. Every time he goes to get it, I just I push it in the corner a little bit further and got, stick your shoulders, save your knees. I've got a young girl right. now. I'm going to buy a rocking horse soon. I'm just going to keep putting her and push her off it, putting her and pushing off it so she can't. Yeah. <laughs> you understand? Do you understand yet? That's how it works. <laughs> so, yeah, you, you're banging it out there. You're doing your apprenticeship, Andy, and you disappeared into town for a bit. Did you head into the city? And from what I understand, like sort of chase that dream, but the city's not really you. 
from everything that I've sort of seen and read. And how long did you actually do in town in there? Well, I done said I started off in Nolmeckville, in Newcastle, and Noel shifted his camp to Hawkesbury. I went there with him for a couple of months, and that was probably getting towards the end of my second season. Noel was great to me. I just got to a stage though, I just seemed to plateau out a little bit and just needed to take that next step to be able to ride in town. And fortunate enough, Darren Beedman helped me out and got me a gig with Brian Guy at Rose Hill. I thought I'd go and give it a couple of months at Brian to see how things went. And luckily for me, things went well with Brian. I've done my last two years with him. He was fantastic for me. I ran second in the Sydney Apprentice Premiership for the last two seasons. Had a little bit of success there without getting anywhere near what Dylan's had. Loved it, every bit of it. But when I come out of my time, just the lifestyle there wasn't for me and I wasn't getting that many opportunities. So obviously back to home, Newcastle was an easy decision for me. And you love it back home? Yeah. Or yeah. else it's a, it's a great spot to live. It's easy enough for me to get to, get to Sydney if I need to. And, you know, the 90% of the tracks that I ride at, it's, I'm in a good spot to, I'm not sort of too far from anywhere. Get up the hunter, no worries, or middle yep. coach, easy enough. So yeah. what was your mindset there when you came back? Like, all right, I'm letting go of the city. That's not for me. I'm not doing. Did you come back and sort of question, am I going to continue being a jockey? Or did you always know that, no, this is what I'm going to do. This is my career. I just need to get to work and sort of figure out how I can make my career stand out in the provincials out where I'm from. No, I never ever thought it across my mind of giving it away there. I, I knew it was just, just taking a different path. I, I could have stayed in town and I, and I reckon I still could have made a good living, but I just thought I could make a better living and a better lifestyle back here. Um, and it took quite a while for me to reach higher levels. So it was a lot of hard work. I went a long time just poking along, you know, any riding 35, 40 minutes a season. I'd always get plenty of rides because I could ride light back then. Obviously, not so much now, but back then I was a natural lightweight. So I'd always get plenty of rides because you get those opportunities down the weights. And so, yeah, I was always still making a good living. So it was just a matter of the chipping away and turning those lightweight rides that we just make up the numbers into riding chances. Correct. Taking any opportunity that you can get. And then what? Then Dill come along, did he? Or how, how old were you when you had him? 23? 23, 23, yeah. 23. Yeah, when I moved back to Newcastle and yeah, obviously pretty young, but I always thought I had an old head on my shoulders and I was something I always wanted was kids. And yeah, obviously when Dylan came along, it, it made me work even harder really to um, support him. I always say that with, and I've always had this mentality because I had a young dad as well. Mum had me when she was 18, dad was 21 and it was the best because I was exactly like you, Dil. You're at the race course every weekend. I was either at the beach surfing or I was at dad's footy games ball boy, sand boy. It's just entrenched in my blood. And I always say that's the best upbringing to have kids early or kids like late now, like you got that nine month because that in-between stage when you're 27, 28, and I've seen a lot of my friends do it. They're always at work. You sort of trying to earn your money, you get home loans or you're breaking into that next sort of adulthood. You're trying to let go of going out and coming back. And I think that, you know, you really miss out on that. When you're young and like you said, 21, 22, your kids just come everywhere. You make it work where that sort of middle stage period, I find that, you know, there's always something on and time is sort of the effort. And then when you get older and, and have kids at older, like we're a bit more set up now. So I find that I get a lot more time to dedicate to the boy and dedicate thing. But I still get a little bit weird because, you know, we come from, not saying we come from nothing, but we come from like, you know, a surf shack house, you know, grommets down the road. We lived on the beach, new surfboards weren't a thing. But it instilled that hunger, instilled that want to drive it and be better. And I always battle with that thought with Sonny because 
I mean, you turn around here, the kid's already got three surfboards racked up and he's two. His name's Sonny. If he doesn't turn into a professional surfer, I don't know what he's going to do for his life. I'll start living my dreams through him. What's your take on raising one now and bringing up Dill as, you know, a young father? Yeah, it's different. Obviously, as you say, with me being so young with Dylan, it probably, and he said he did do everything with me and he's got to what time he was sort of early teenager, he was well, sort of more mates than father, son, and that's the way it's always been with us. We're, we're very close, just as close with my little child, sorry, young Ryan, he's 14, but just for me and Dylan, yeah, with the age thing, it's made us very, very close, probably more so with work now too. We're sort of always together. Um, but with the younger daughter, it's a different perspective now. Clearly, I've done what I needed to do. I took a little bit of a step back. I don't write as many places. I, I want to spend some time with her. And uh, there were still some things I missed out with Dylan that I want to make sure I don't miss out with her and also with Ryan. I do find it different, harder to sort of explain how. But yeah, I think her upbringing might be a little bit different. You've got your middle one in there, Ryan. Is he on the same path? Does he love racing? He loves watching his dad, loves watching his brother, and he gets just as pumped as anyone when he sees such success, but has absolutely no interest in riding a horse. So I'm happy to keep it that way. He's like me as a child. He's just made on his soccer. He's dead On set. his soccer. Yeah, he's determined to make it as a soccer player. He yeah. played at a pretty high level in Newcastle with Romano Magic, and he's doing quite well there. He's hoping to progress enough to be able to get to a Jets youth team, and hopefully things can snowball for him there. Well, it's definitely at that development stage. I always say, like, Dill, you said you didn't jump on a horse until you're 15, 16, and probably because your dad kept you off it. But I never see any benefits in going gangbuster, making rep sides and, and being up. The hard work comes once you get to 18. You know, you see all a lot of players, a lot of kids just burnt out already, drop off, disappear. And, you know, all the abundance of talent and skill that they had, they're going to be a superstar when they're a kid. It just fades out and disappears. And the ones that stick on, the ones that get to work when they sort of get to that 18, 19 year old stage, don't take no for an answer, start turning over opportunities and perseverance in everything they do. They're the ones that continue to grow and continue to make it. I'll switch over to you, Dill. Growing up with a dad, with a young dad, how good was it? Did you enjoy it? Yeah, it was unreal, especially when I was sort of old enough to get really involved in racing. It was the best thing in the world, school holidays to come around and if dad rode 14 days of the 14 days I had off school holidays, I was in the car with him, had my iPad and that'd get me through the drives. And then I'd sit in the room all day. And yeah, that was just like heaven for me being able to do that. So yeah, especially once I got to that bit older age where I was able to go to the races with him, that, um, that was some of the best days ever. And he's skipping school. Did he ever grab you and say, Hey, we're heading down here today, boy, get in the car. Or was no, he pretty we- strict on keeping you in school? I wish he did more. He didn't even want me to, to be a jockey full stop. So he wasn't giving me a day off, but I'd try and sneak it to do that. What's you thinking there, Andy? Why didn't you want him to be a jockey? Obviously, when he was younger, I used to do it pretty tough. As I said, I just chip away most of the time turning up, riding 20, 30 to one things. And yeah. And a tough gig. I was Most like, dangerous job in the world, might I add. Obviously, yeah, with what's going on recently, just goes to show that. But yeah, no, it, was, it was a tough gig. It's in, and even though if you keep getting plenty of rides, you can still make an earn. It's no one likes just turning up and make up the numbers. And, and I'd also spent quite a few seasons doing that and just getting the odd winner here and there and no consistent success. And obviously there wasn't the fact that I didn't think he could do it and be successful at it. I was a worry that if he got into it and wasn't successful as he is now, he might regret it and had nothing to fall back on. That's why I was always hard on him being at school and in case things didn't work out. I hear that mentality a lot. 
that was drummed into me from my old boy as well with rugby league. He goes, just, just get this behind you. But I was the same as you, Dill. You couldn't play the rugby league out of me. And as soon as I found that niche and that training and that want to continue to grow, like I can see why fathers do that. And I just spoke about it before, you know, every time Sonny gets close to a footy, I just push it away a little bit further, you know, because I've got bung shoulders, I've got bung knees, you know, I consistently wake up and I'm always doing some sort of exercise to strengthen some other part to pull my body back into line. So I don't, you know, have to live with pain. I can understand from that perspective. But I also always think, you know, our sons are a byproduct of who we surround ourselves with. And me watching my dad surf, me watching my dad play rugby league, I was never going to be anything or try and be a professional rugby league player or a professional surfer. So Dill, was that sort of the mentality for you? Or was it like monkey see, monkey do with dad? Like, because you were around it so much, did you just enjoy being there with him and enjoy the sport? Or was there like something else like hidden down? Was there any sort of could you see the lights? Could you see where it's going to go? Like where I could go to winning big races, being a superstar of the sport. I guess what I'm trying to say is people have different motivations to why they do things. Some people just love doing it and other people love, you know, they do it for the money or the prize. Bankers work that way. They do it for the money and the prize and all that. But like Jonathan Thurston in rugby league is a great example. He just loved playing rugby league where Cooper Cronk was the exact opposite. He loved being in the spotlight and limelight, and that's what motivated him. So what's your motivation, Dill? Is it love of the sport or, or is it the glam and the lights at the end of the day? No, I was just sick about a game. And I remember when I was a young boy, I'd managed to turn anything into a set of barriers and create my own races out of just little toys. And as a kid, I had a little, little bag full of dad's old race gear with his silks, boots, I got heaps of colors off people, a helmet, goggles. My poor rocking horse had a nice tight girth on it with a race saddle and a race cloth. And I'd even go and change the reins from the little pony ones to race day reins. I don't know why, but it just... Entrenched in your DNA. Yeah, just even when I try and think back to when I realized I wanted to be a jockey, I honestly can't. It's just probably wasn't a a natural quote-unquote rider, but I was always just going to be involved in racing. It's just all I ever enjoyed. And once I'd got a bit older, I went from creating races to, I had a PlayStation 3 with Group 1 Jockey on it. And geez, I can't tell you how many hours I spent on that game. And <laughs> yeah. Was that a PlayStation 3, did you say? Yeah. Yeah. yeah Gibbo, what did you grow up with? Because mine was a Sega Master System. Yeah. Atari. Atari. Yeah, you got a couple of years on me, eh? So. <laughs> okay. I guess what if you, you look at your both paths, like Andy, you've been a model of the grind of showing up every day of, all right, this is what I need to do. Being with Chris Lees. And I guess you have reinvented yourself along the way because you're saying you're going through these periods, you're only getting 20 or 30 winners, but mate, it was only uh, four years ago, three years ago that you're, you're banging over a hundred winners in a season, taking out premierships and just absolutely on fire. And this was only from about, oh, I think you were doing about off memory. I looked up the stats. It was about 700 rides for the year. So I think your workload over the last couple of years has dropped a little bit. It's gone to about 500 rides a year. But yeah, when you were in that 700 zone, you were consistently, I think it was for three or four years in a row, just breaking 100 winners every season. Was there a different shift of focus in those years or what sort of happened? Yeah, it was gradual. I took me to about 10 years ago, maybe 12 years ago to actually rode 50 winners in a season. From that season on, there was a gradual increase. I think I went seven or eight seasons in a row where I didn't beat my prior season. I'd always ride more than the season before. 
the combination with Chris Lees was massive for me. And I just was lucky enough that at the time when him leaped up, his stable just kept growing and growing and growing. Every season he was having was getting bigger and we just had great success. And from that, everyone else sort of jumped on board too. And, and I was getting plenty of else outside success. And as you say, those couple of seasons, I've got a hundred over a hundred winners were, I think I ran second in there. He's a wild premiership first haul and then I won it the next year and has dropped a little bit the last couple of years. I've had injuries as well as other things, but oh, I personally backed off anyway myself. Just said there's been a few meetings where before I'd be desperate to go to, I'm worried about losing a ride on something. I've just had to try and not worry about that anymore and, and have a little bit better lifestyle. And, and in doing so, I've started to enjoy it again because those years when I was doing those 700 rides, that's much fun as it was that it was barely a day you went to the race and didn't ride a winner. It was so tough. Yeah, I say this all the time, like racing 365 days a year. As an athlete, as someone who has to stay fit and strong, you can't peak consistently. You really have to, and I guess this is where you'd pass on your knowledge to Dill, is, mate, plan out your runs, plan out an eight, 12-week assault, and then taper it back. Make sure you take that breath of fresh air Make sure you hit reset because if you do exactly what you just said, that workload, that 700, you lose that love and it becomes work. It becomes waking up in the morning and it becomes discipline to get you to the job site rather than, you know, fuck yeah, I've got these rides, I've got this book, this one's a chance. These people are going out there. I've got old mate up my ass in the ratings. How am I going to do it? What sort of toll did that take on your body those seasons, those 700 rides? Physically, it wasn't too bad. It's a mental thing. It just got mentally draining, you know, sitting there and you start having days where you just hate it. You still want to turn up. You're still going to get the job done with muscle memory. You just sort of, you can still do it. But there were many a day when I just didn't feel like doing it, but I'm not the sort of guy, they'll take a ride and not turn up. If I got up one morning and went, I just, last thing I want to do is go to the races. I'll still go. I'll still get the job done. But there were plenty of days that were like that where I, I didn't feel like going, but still battled through. But as I said, since taking a bit of a step back and just really still working hard, but working a bit smarter. Well, I found I'm enjoying more, and this will sound silly, that I'm riding less winners now, but I think I'm riding better because I'm going there in a better frame of mind. I'm not getting as good opportunities because I'm not riding as often, and that's going to happen, but I'm happy. And outside of racing as well, I'm happier, which then reflects my riding, and I honestly believe that when the opportunities are coming now, I'm, I'm probably riding them better than I was when I was riding all those winners. I see that as well. To elaborate on that is... There's two ways out of it, out of a situation like that. It's to double down and 10x what you do and just take another 700 rides, do 1,400 rides and beat yourself into oblivion to love it again, or it's to hit reset like that. And I speak about this all the time on the podcast and I speak about it within my stories and that, and it's called point zero. So it's actually hitting that reset button and not chasing your former self, not chasing those hundred winners or that season that you had two or three seasons ago. It's like exactly what you just said all right, I'm enjoying it more now. And my goal isn't, you know, you spoke about how you got to those hundred winners. It was always beating last season, beating last season, improving, improving, improving. You can't continue to improve once you get to 120 winners, 130, 150. That's so hard to replicate that effort. So being able to let that go and actually establish that achievement and go, that was a fucking amazing season. You know, that was a highlight of my career, but that doesn't define me. And I don't need to better that again. Each time hitting reset, point zero, start again. And then we're moving forward from there where it's a 1% gain rather than starting at negative 100 
and going to negative 99. In 10 weeks, you're looking at positive 10 instead of negative 90. It's a whole different mind frame and structure, and it can really refresh, refreshes me all the time. I, I force myself to do it all the time. So your way into it, Dill, I guess, would have a little bit more structure rather than the grind that, you, that your old boy's done because you've got his knowledge to sort of share. And we've seen that already when, whose decision was it to make sure that you finished out your apprenticeship or stay in Newcastle before going into town? Because I remember reading something back in the day going, no, look, we're going to spend the next three months right out the Newcastle premiership. And then next season or next year, once the season starts, we'll go to town and start chasing some big winners there. So who sort of come up with that plan? That was pretty well dad's plan because like you said, that's where his knowledge kicked in and having seen it all and, and seen a lot of other apprentices come through and seen the ones that succeeded and did them. And along with Chris as well, you know, he obviously had to be on, he and dad worked that out between them and sort of mapped out that plan for me, which I was all for. And the way things have gone, you can tell that was the right play and it's been the right play with a few apprentices just before me too and the success they've had. So that's probably going to be the long-term plan with most apprentices now because there's been a lot of success doing that with not only myself, but a couple other apprentices too. And it's just the right way to go about it. You learn so much doing it and you obviously reap the rewards when the time's right. What did it used to be like, Andy? Did it used to be your apprentice, get up, go to work, ride what I tell you to ride. No one used to plan anything. And if you burn out, you know, you're gone or that kid's gone, which is just used to be replacing with the next. Or how does the racing industry sort of work in the background in regards to apprentices like that? Yeah, well, when I started, I said the year I started, the January, February, wherever it was, I had a member set on a horse. I rode my first winner December that year. And I remember thinking I was, I was flying. I'd done 10, 12 trials and then went to the races and thought I was ready. And while I was riding, I still thought I was ready. Looking back now, I cannot believe I was allowed to ride in the race. And yeah. it's all for everyone. Once you've got your 10 trials, you're usually just glad to go to the races. Good luck learning the game. But there wasn't as much scrutiny back then. You could ride at places that weren't televised. You could make mistakes all your life. And that was always my plan with Dylan. Then Chris was of the grain set. Everything we wanted to do with him, we wanted him to be over ready. I wanted him to ride more work than he needed before he went to the trials. I wanted him to do more trials than he needed before he went to the races. So once he was ready to go to the races, I wanted him to do another 20, 30 trials. I wanted him to be over ready. And then the progression from country to provincial to town, same thing. We wanted to make sure that he was past being ready, not just ready or just before he's ready because he's so easily labelled, especially these days with the media and there's not a race case by everyone can't watch. If you make, you start off too soon and you make, everyone's going to make mistakes, but you make them same mistakes too often, you get labelled so easily and the opportunities don't come. And I see some kids that have got plenty of ability and they'll show it later on in life, but because early on they started too soon, everyone said, well, he's no good. And it's not the case, but yeah. you're so easily labelled and then, in this game, there's always someone else to jump in and take in the next one coming through and you, you don't get that opportunity again. So everything I wanted with Dylan was to be over ready and that's what we've done. And I think that's why he's achieved like he has. Yeah. Good. And a great a point, sort of rugby league reference there is Ash Taylor under Wayne Bennett, getting guidance, coaching, Broncos, taking the uh, Colts and the team to grand finals there, gets pulled out, gets a $1.5 million contract at the Gold Coast Titans and gets three different coaches or four different coaches while he's at the Titans. The Titans fire people. He gets no mentoring. He gets no coaching. He's The team's thrust onto his shoulders because he's getting paid 1.5 mil. Do something, kid. Do something, kid. And he ends up early retiring. I honestly believe if he stayed with Wayne, he's a Queensland halfback. So maybe they're going to do a, a movie on you. 
Gibbo, King Gibbo instead of King Richards, like the Williams is. What do you reckon? Who would play you? And I said in an interview the other day, as, as much as I've had these plans to Dylan and Chris is the same, he's Chris given the opportunities. I get a lot of pats in the back saying, how good a job I've done, but I get a little bit embarrassed at times, the amount of praise I get for it, because there's been plenty of kids before Dylan that have had the same or better guidance than me. And there's been plenty of kids before Dylan that have had more opportunities or better opportunities than Chris Lee's has given Dylan and they haven't succeeded. It's not just successful because of my lines or Chris's opportunities. That's right. Yeah. It's on the back of what he's done. We, we've helped him. We've probably paid 10% part in what he's achieved. Yeah. The rest but when you get to that level and Dylan, I'm going to come back to you and go through your training regimes and everything like that now. But when you get to that level, the one percenters count and little things like this, but the age old saying, you can lead a horse to water. You can't make him drink. You can have all this plan mapped out and without Dylan's will, and, you know, perseverance and drive as well. None of this works. So hats off to you, you know, senior, junior. Mate, keep plugging away. Keep getting at it. So, Dill, we were talking about mistakes. And look, this isn't a mistake from you, but it's actually a I call you Mr. Consistent Giver. Because like I said in the beginning of the podcast, you're just trustworthy in what you do. It doesn't matter what you ride. You'll show up. You'll give it the best opportunity. And everyone knows that. There's so many people who give up or this ain't going to win today. They'll pull it up. And you can see your riding in Dylan's as well. But Dill, I've seen you lift things that shouldn't have been lifted home. Okay. And there's also times when you're like, nah, and you wouldn't blame you for just sitting down and going, there's a second. But I've seen you go, nah, and just start pushing, getting over the top of them, giving it to all you can. It might've been in a maiden or it might've been on the weekend. But this one, two weeks ago, it was on Wrathful. It was a Wrathful yeah. in the Midway Handicap at the 72. It's Don't death for it on that one because you give it a shit right early. Yeah. It dropped it out the back. It's wet. You're, what, 16 lengths off them, coming around the turn, and then you've got two $101 shots boxing you in at the back. I was on your big as well. I'm shaking my head. I'm going, oh, this thing ain't going to win. But, um... I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe how much you sat down and wrote. And look, this is what I'm talking about. And this is why I'm so impressed with your ability to, to not give up. And that's what this podcast is all about. I guess the question would be, what were you thinking coming around the turn, trying to nudge your way out with these three or four sluggers going in front of you on a heavy, what was it, a heavy nine or heavy 10 or something yeah, like that? Probably close to a heavy 10. My probably exact thoughts were, fuck's sake, this <laughs> Just, I never sort of normally do the things I did, but I always try and pride myself on riding my horses, how they're going. And even knowing the horse being the casual bugger he is, he was just sort of on and off the bridle. And, and every time I wanted to plop and go, he wasn't underneath me. So by the time I would kick him in the guts to get him to go, like you said, some slow horses kept taking my spots and two or three times, you know, I lost the spot I should have been in, but you know, I just don't feel the need to, to send horses out wide and make them cover ground when they're not going good. But I should have just backed him a bit more and thankfully enough, once I did get him in clear air, his, his serious ability got me out of trouble there. Oh yeah, mate. I was sitting down on the bar stool, just like bringing it home as I had all the boys. I was like, boys, watch this, check this. Dill's going to get this one home. And, and then coming around the turn, I was like trying to put my hoodie on over my head and he took it off. There he is. He's got told you. I fucking told you. Mate, I guess that's the exciting of racing and the ability as well. For you, what's your mentality? What's driving you between a maiden and a, and a different ride? Because I see you ride everything out. 
how was that instilled and who taught you that? Or was that just something that comes from within? Yeah. Like you said, you know, I grew up obviously watching dad and spent a lot of time with dad and like you touched on before, just consistency was the thing, you know, he was, when I'd sit in the room with him, he wasn't going, oh, I'll try on this one. I won't try on this one. You know, you just, you just turn up and go, but the right way to look at this is Chris and some of his main owners who supported me from day one when I was riding at Tamworth and Tari Maidens and now they're giving me city winners. It's just as important to them to get their maiden winners in the bushes it is to win in town. You know, they've got their owners, like Chris has got his owners dancer too and the syndicates have got their owners underneath them dancer too. So if they're looking after me, you know, I've got to be out there doing my best because, you know, if they're sending me there and put me on them horses, it's because, you know, they're, they're trusting me to get the job done and give their horse every chance and give them their feedback. You can't just be having half a go. It's, it's the type of job if you have half a go, like, for example, Raffle, you know, you'd say that was half a go and he's, yeah. you know, trouble, but you just, right. you got to turn up and do the thing for the people who supported you. You know, if I'm turning up to the country meetings and only having half a go because it's quite unquote, just a country meeting because I run city, it's just, it's not a good look and not a good attitude. And, and you can't build that clientele if you're only trying in certain areas, because how can they guarantee when you're at that area where it looks like you're trying, you're, you're not going to because you got something better. You, you just got to turn up every day and give it 110% and just make a habit of it. Mate, that is probably one of the best responses I've heard to that at all time. Like people can make excuses and that just that no excuse mentality, that absolute do or die, doesn't matter what it is. I'm like that. I go through my phases, I guess, but I get to a point where I can't walk past a piece of rubbish on the ground because if I walk past a piece of rubbish, that little man in my head is beating me. You know, you didn't do that and it'll bug me for 10 minutes. You let that thought beat you. And it could be a bubblegum wrapper on the floor or, you know, just that's that whole persona. So mate, um, look, keep that going and keep that mentality and don't let anybody tap into that trust in what you, you know, your thought pattern and don't let anyone curb that mentality. Because I tell you right now, there is a shitload of people out there who wish they thought that way, who wish they had that in them. The last few things I guess before we wrap it up, guys, is really want to know like what you do behind the scenes still. Is there a training regime? Is there a program or is it a lot of, a lot, I guess for both of you, Andy, you're be more a match fitness sort of guy, as much riding as you can get into you. But Dill, do you do any strength work? Do you do any movement work? Um, is golf included? Diet like? How does that work? Is golf included? Because that's all he does. You golf fiend, are you? You love yeah. it? Yeah. Quite How good. do you hit him? I hit him pretty good today. I'm getting better. So yeah. working on it slowly. But like you just said, match practice, you, you spend so much time at the races that when you do get a day off, probably the last thing you want to be doing is going and working out. But it's a fine line to thread, especially being a jockey. And if you're taller, you know, I, I would be careful if I'm trying to overeat and work other muscles I don't need and, you know, just adding any excess weight. So I I sort of, what I've done from day one is just try and stay active and you ride track work six days a week. So when I get time off, I just try and relax and reset as much as I can in between them. I really, really got into cooking lately and love cooking. So I find it easier to sort of eat well. I don't know what eat well sometimes can't. Mate, don't watch my Instagram. Have you have you seen it, Dill, or not? Andy, um, you've seen it, haven't you? I have not I keep telling the Mrs. Brewer, I knew I had for Christmas one year. Again. Mate, Ken Cook, steaks this big. I'll, I'll have you sumo wrestling in no time. What, how tall are you actually, Dill? Don't know what it converts to, but I think the last time I got measured for my medical, I was... 170, 
high 170 centimeters. So what's that? It's about five nine, five ten. Well, six O's 180. So yeah, I think probably five nine, five ten. Five, five nine, five. So you're still up there. You're still pretty tall. And Andy, what are you? You a couple of inches under, are you? Yeah, I'm one four foot ten. Four foot ten. Yeah. <laughs> Take up a lead role as Frodo Duggins, you reckon? We've actually got him on a booster seat beside me. And I'm yeah. still <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We'll sit on the baby seat here. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I guess, so you, like you said, easy riding light for you, Andy. Dill, what do you sort of sit around weight-wise? Well, I, I sort of walk around 53, maybe touch heavier than 53 if I've got no reason. Why? Like at the minute, yeah, I'm being suspended. So I've had a fair few pub feeds and splurging a bit pizza getting pizza delivered while the footy's on and i'm pretty lucky i've got a i've got a pretty good metabolism and i sort of have spent a long time keeping an eye on my weight and what i can eat and what i cannot eat and some people who see what i go and have for dinner are surprised i'm so light but i sort of know my limits know when i can and can't afford them big meals and got a very good routine of knowing when when not to eat and and for that i stay pretty light and be shocked some of the dinners i have and, and still pretty light the next day so yeah well, that's good, mate. And like you said, the choosing the right foods and, and light foods and that as well. And understanding that calories in, calories out sort of equation is huge in your industry. I always talk about it though. I get worried, especially Lukey Dipman up here. He's nearly same height, height as me. He's nearly six foot. And he, for him to ride, ride at 58, you know, it's a big rinse for him. So I always worry about the insides. I always worry about what pressure it's putting on your organs and, and how to sustain that. But it sounds like you've got that switched on. But we all usually do when we've got a metabolism of a you know a young fella 21 22 i guess the test and times will be in your career will be you know the coming years when, once you sort of get to that 30 age bracket and but you if you've done the right things by then you'll usually be into it mate highlight of your career i've got to touch on this group 1 sydney cup how did that feel yeah that was just a quick burst of emotions adrenaline it was quite crazy especially sort of the lead up into it I thought it was pretty cool. I think it was four weeks before that, getting my first group one rides. And then the next week, you know, Montefilia came and then I had Ruthless Dame, who was favorite, second favorite in the market. And and then fortunately enough, after that, getting the group, it was just, everything happened so fast. And I thought it would be fun at getting a group one ride. And then might have been able to pick up a $150 shot in them races, but the really light weights and have to bust myself for it. But things ended up falling my way. And Got some great opportunities in their races and didn't even have to go too light and some of them will wait for age races. So, um, yeah, it was a bit of a shock to the system and sadly it all moved on too quick, but that just makes me a bit hungry for the next one. The Sydney Cup, for people who don't understand, it's the same distance as the Melbourne Cup. It's 3,200 metres. What's it like riding a race like that? Like a distance, like getting your horse into rhythm, getting them underneath you, making sure they're relaxed. Like how does your body re- like react to being in a race that goes for that long? Compared to, I guess, a thousand meters, twelve hundred, fourteen hundred sort of race. Are there telling tales within your do things start to burn? Is there uncomfortable positions? How does this work, boys? Fill us in for us non jockeys. As silly as it sounds, it's a thirty two hundred and twelve hundred because they're so different. You do feel the pinch a little bit dead towards the end of them staying races, but you do the same thing so long it's just sort of muscle memory and in, in your twelve hundred thousand meter races, I know that's a third of it a Sydney cup, but there's a lot going on. You're going a lot quicker. You've got horses that are going quicker and you're trying to help them stay balanced while they're going quick. And you've got things flying around everywhere and you've got so much more to work out. We're in a 3,200. 
you spend the first two, 300 meters getting your spot. And then from there, nothing really happens. It's, it's just, you sort of sit on your horse, you're keeping them in the rhythm and look, things can happen in that race, but everything's sort of a lot slower. You know, they, they aren't as reactive than horses and they're quite settled. So to some degree, they probably almost take the same toll on your body. Just one's a little bit longer and slower and the other's quite far and happens fast. So in terms of what it takes in your body now, it doesn't necessarily whack the wind out of you as much. They're all as hectic as each other and the shorter ones, they're shorter, but a lot happens in a lot quicker time where the long ones, you got a bit more time, things flow and you should have got time to relax and settle in. I actually find the longer races a little bit more enjoyable because you do get time to turn a breath and to suck a mean jury, whereas the shorter ones just go go and you heart rates up, everything's going for the whole way. At least in all the ones, once you've found your spot after a while, you can take a breath, you can assess what's going on and take your time and it gives your body a chance to actually get comfortable. For people at home, a 1,000 metres race is about, on a, a really fast horse, is 56 seconds. You know, if you break the 56, you're flying. But 3,200 metre horse, it's over two minutes on the back, 230s, probably longer. It's been getting up around the three, three minute mark. Or, yeah, it's been yeah. over three there, are you? Yeah, over three, yeah. But you're saying the shorter ones are, so that would be more like a high intensity sort of interval training. People listening at home, you know, horses usually come home that the when they stoke them up and try and sit down and ride 400. If you're getting, you know, 22 seconds or 23 seconds worth of work in, you go jump up and down to do star jumps for 20 seconds and, and see if you're blowing anyone at home. So what's the difference between, is it like go, go, go for that minute on, is your heart rate out the gate on a sprinter or is there still hard work to be done at the end? And are you blowing at the end? Like how people think you're holding on, but I see you guys after races and getting past the post and it's just big breaths, like big. So are you guys exhausted by that point or what's going on with the body? What's the breathing? Like what's the energies I guess you exert? If you want to use the running way to try and explain it to people, just say thousand meter races are probably equivalent to you sprinting 200 meters. Whereas a staying race is probably like, say, going 2Ks at three-quarter pace. Both of them are going to pull up blowing and probably as hard as each other. A total different hard, if that makes sense. So if you just sort of hold a three-quarter pace and 2Ks, is, you're still going to pull up like you had done something pretty hard. Whereas same if you just sprint 200 metres. And it's the same for us. It's, you probably get the same at the end of it. The results are the same at the end of it. Both a staying race and a shorter race. But you sort of get to that fatigue different ways. What about a full book of rides compared to three or four rides? Does that take a toll at the end of the day? Are you, after eight rides, say you got a full book or seven or eight, nine, are you exhausted? Are you spent? Is that a lot of energy expenditure for the day? Yeah, they, them days are hard. Probably more so for Dylan with those Sandy Town meetings, having 10 races during non-carnival times. It was nothing unusual for Dylan to have eight, nine, 10. He's probably could explain how hard them ones get. I don't have them long days anymore as much as I used to. I'm, you know, I'm going sort of five and six rides and meeting him. Obviously, my body's a lot more used to it, but Dylan would probably know more about them eight, nines, and tens there. They'd have to be tough on the body. The hardest part about them too is you probably have your first run, especially with the way Dallas having is now. The first race is before 12 o'clock, and then the last race is around five o'clock. It's a long, sustained, sustained day, and, and you got to try and peak eight, nine, ten times. That's after riding work in the morning too. Yeah, that's a big day. I thought I did big days getting up at three, but I'm in bed at six, six thirty. That's it, done. Three a.m. up, train yeah. six, sleep. Still working harder from space. They're doing Friday nights and they're not getting to bed. 
10 or 11, obviously they don't have to ride work if they're doing that, but still, yeah, like some of them boys can do six or seven rides Friday night and have to back it up with eight or 10 rides on a Saturday. Yeah, that's, I had a big chat to Wigo about that up here, about the uh, Sunshine Coast Friday night meetings coming up from Brizzy. And then by the time he got home, if he was in the last, he was asleep. And then, you know, if he's got a ride in Brizzy the next day, like yeah. add structure. Yeah, because Dill, you're in the mix of it at the moment. You're up about the 80 rides a month. So, you know, that's 20 a week, if not more, not including your track work, not including your training, not including all that. So there is a toll going through your body. Have you planned out, I guess you're on relax now, taking your suspension time. What did you get suspended for? I got suspended at Hawkesbury. I just sort of drifted out on one when I was going all right. And it sort of went a bit further than I expected to. And a few got cleaned up. Oh, well, yeah. good bloke. <laughs> Don't worry about that. It's not you um, wanted, so we had to make sure again every chance. Yeah, it was my horse, by the way. No. Nah. Um, <laughs> how funny was that? Uh, one of the boys did the meme, the Homer Simpson changing lanes when Huey was on, but he took out everyone. They stuck his head on. I might do that. Put Dill's head on lane change. Yeah, he goes, he's worth a mess of Yeah, he was as big as that. That was huge. That was insane. That was great. I'm so lucky no one got hurt off that, actually. So, guys. Finally, before we wrap it up, what's the plan? What's the plans for the future? Senior, I'll start with you. Give it to me. Three kids, nine-month-year-old. Dill's going gangbusters. You're trying to keep his head on and go structure. You're riding 50 rides a week still, enjoying riding again. There's no retirement on the horizon, is there? No, not at this stage. Um, my body's still great. You know, the weight's crept up a bit now. It's still manageable. Don't have to do it too tough. John, what I'm doing, so I've got a little one to support now and building a new house. Just keep doing and doing, just keep chipping away, going hard. And now COVID's over. Um, hopefully I can get back to my, my schedule I used to have before that or just giving myself that one or two weeks off every at the end of every season, going overseas if I can. Luckily enough, me and Dylan and a few other family, we're going to duck away in August, get overseas and, and have a break away, but just keep chipping away doing that, enjoying watching Dylan progress. Dill, what about you? What's the, I guess, not to shoot too far ahead, go for the glam and glory, and this is going to be the number one jockey and all that. Short-term goal for this season, and then give us a two or three-year sort of plan, what you see progressing and what you want to happen. Well, a short-term goal, you know, I'm still trying to chase that premiership. You know, it's going to be quite hard, Zach and Tyler. Who are you up against? Tyler? Yeah, Tyler, Zach. Zach's flying, but... He seems to ride one month on and be suspended the next month. Yeah. Tyler just can't stop riding winners. So look, I'm having good fun chasing them boys because it's keeping me honest and making sure I'm keeping my head down and knuckling away at it. And probably the long term, as much as, you know, I've been fortunate to have a lot of success now, my career's probably getting to crunch time where I'm about to lose that claim and have no real advantage on anyone. It's going to be sort of me against the rest. So I've got to try and build them connections and get people on side to be able to support me without a claim and, and really establish myself and, you know, not, not fall back into that trap of where you're just picking up what people don't want and trying to still get them better rides and keep their quantity of winners up and, you know, hopefully keep the good success going. Yeah, I love it. I love it. So you're not living in town or where are you living? Oh, I live at Waratah's about five, 10 minutes away from the track and just looking yeah. at another one soon, hopefully a bit closer. Yeah. Happy days. Yeah. Look, that's going to be the transition point. That's probably going to be your, I spoke about it earlier on the rep stage, transferring over to adult sort of riding and, and staying within the ranks. Mate, keep working at it. Don't take no for an answer. Perseverance. How many times have you heard of people, you know, 
shutting up shop or walking away just because it just ain't happening when, you know, that one moment was just around the corner. So as someone who's, who's been like that, mate, I, I wish you all the best. I love watching you ride on weekends and just continue to put in 100% effort. Andy, to you, mate, thank you so much for organizing this podcast. I, I love it. I love and getting the insight that you guys have shown. The final question I'm going to wrap up is with how many rides have you had against each other and who's winning? Is it 3-5? Is it 4-1? What's going on here? Couldn't you mean just mean Cornellas? Nah, just against oh, each other. How many times you, has Senior and Junior been in the same race and Senior got over the top? Couldn't tell you. But as far as Cornellas go, I, used to, I had the upper hand to start with, but he's got me covered, Neil. Yeah, I reckon the first six, seven Cornellas, I probably was, and four or five of them, but yeah, he's got past me on that front. Yeah, I keep running second to him. We were running one, two. As far as... Yeah, and we told you ride against each other. Yeah, I lost count those first 18 months riding together all the time. Oh, of course, yeah. Yeah, I wouldn't even be able to stab at that one. If you're not first, you'll ask. So yeah, true. that's what we're yeah. Good old Ricky Bobby. <laughs> <laughs> Mate, boys, thank you so much. Yeah, I'm over the moon and I'm so stoked to have a chat with you. So thank you again. To everyone else out there, mate, you switch on the TV on Saturday, you'll see Dill riding. He's getting some gangbuster ones in town. You want Mr. Consistency and the Provincials out there, go check out Newcastle and all around the northern New South. How far do you go up, actually, Andy? far as north, the north coast, we go across Arbor and Grafton and then up the Hunter, I go to Tamworth and Scarn. Grafton, Grafton. Hey, didn't you win a, the Ramoni up there? Won the Ramoni, yeah. That was my first black type winner for um, Peter Snowden. That was probably uh, eight, nine years ago now. That's a great race. I love that race. Sorry, so longer than that, so you just yeah. 2011, Dylan said. So, um, yeah, yeah, well, there you go. You, you can switch on the TV, see these boys riding every single weekend. You catch them during the week as well, doing the hard works behind the scenes. You guys, if you want to like and share, Dill, you got an Insta or anything like that, people can follow your progress. Yeah, I think all my usernames are just DJ Gibbons. Andy, what's yours? At Gibbos2734. Gibbos7822. 7822. Check out the boys' rides, and I'm always posting as well. I'm always sharing. I love to celebrate, and I love a win, mate. That's how it goes. Thank you so much, ladies and gentlemen. Any given chance, if you can jump on there, give us a like, share, subscribe, get your family and friends involved. And if you know of someone with a good story, with you know someone working hard behind the scenes, get them in contact with me and we'll sit them down and have a chat. So there it is. We'll wrap it up. Thanks heaps. Woo! <laughs> wow, that was the Any Given Chance podcast. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Now, if you want to see some more action, head over to our socials and give us a like, share, and subscribe. We're on YouTube at the Any Given Chance Podcast and on Instagram and TikTok at Any Given Chance. And if you can hit share and subscribe, much appreciated as we grow. Plus, we're always looking for new guests. So if you know someone in the midst of a battling, good little bit of adversity or someone who's been successful, message us direct. We always check out your inbox. And of course, if you want to check out old episodes, repurposed ones, you can jump over to our website, which is anygivenchancepodcast.org. Thanks for joining us once again. I'm your host, 3AM365, Matty Menion. No days off, no excuses, and I can't wait to catch you on the next one.